Welcome back to the Hemingway List for Book 13, Chapter 10. Again, we see Tolstoy compare the movements of men to clockwork. Does this repeated metaphor have a deeper meaning and the proclamations have almost no effect on the start of Moscow? In fact, in some cases, they worsen the chaos. I think it's meant to be the state of Moscow. Uh, why is this the case? Why did the proclamations have no effect or even a negative effect on the state of Moscow? Ripster 66 says, If the clockwork metaphor has a deeper meaning, it is lost on me, unfortunately. It feels repetitive and made the chapter harder to get through for me. I'm having a harder time staying interested at this point. I hope he swings back to our beloved characters soon. The proclamations were hilarious to me. I can see Napoleon proudly assuming he has everything under control now that he's proclaimed it to be so. The last line of the chapter sums it up perfectly. Uh, Lost Souls in a Bowl says this, You can't just say all these things and expect something to happen. I didn't say them, I proclaimed them. Napoleon Michael Scott Bonaparte. Um... Haruki says, bring back Berg and Vera. I need some comic relief from these chapters. And FDLP says, we get all the metaphors in this one. Malfunctioning clock, the beast, the child. Though the symbols are very different, they reinforce the chaos that's become of Moscow and the French army. Yeah, hammered home a little too hard, maybe. By the sounds of things, from the feedback I'm seeing here, at least. It's kind of like, here we get the message. Moscow is chaotic. Um, now, good news is we do return to our characters in today's chapter because I saw the first line of today's chapter talks about Pierre. So I think we've got a Pierre chapter on our hands, which is always good. You know, you've got to love a Pierre chapter. So let's dive into chapter 11, see what he's up to. Probably nothing good because he's a prisoner of war. Early in the morning of the 6th of October, Pierre went out of the shed and on returning, stopped by the door to play with a little blue-grey dog. With a long body and short bandy legs that jumped about him, this little dog lived in their shed, sleeping beside Karatiev at night. It sometimes made excursions into the town, but always returned again. Probably it had never had an owner and it still belonged to nobody and had no name. The French called it Azor, the soldier, who told stories called it Fem Gulk <coughs> excuse me, Fem Gulka. Karatev and others called it Grey and sometimes Flabby. Its lack of a master, a name, or even a breed, or any definite colour, did not seem to trouble the blue grey dog in the least. Its furry tail stood up firm and round as a plume, its bandy legs served it so well that it would often gracefully lift a hind leg and run very easily and quickly on three legs as if disdaining to use all four. Everything pleased it. Now it would roll on its back, yelping with delight. Now it would bask in the sun with a thoughtful air of importance, and now frolic about playing with a chip of wood or a straw. Pierre's attire by now consisted of a dirty torn shirt, the only remnant of his former clothing, a pair of soldier's trousers which, by Karatev's advice, he tied with string around the ankles for warmth, and a peasant coat and cap, Physically, he had changed much during this time. He no longer seemed stout, though he still had the appearance of solidity and strength hereditary in his family. A beard and a moustache covered the lower part of his face, and a tangle of hair, infested with lice, curled round his head like a cap. 
The look of his eyes was resolute, calm and animatedly alert as never before. The former slackness which had shown itself even in his eyes was now replaced by an energetic readiness for action and resistance. His feet were bare. Pierre first looked down the field across which vehicles and horsemen were passing that morning, then into the distance across the river, then at the dog who was pretending to be in earnest about biting him, and then at his bare feet which he placed with pleasure in various positions, moving his dirty, thick, big toes. Every time he looked at his bare feet, a smile of animated self-satisfaction flitted across his face. The sight of them reminded him of all he had experienced and learned during these weeks, and this recollection was pleasant to him. For some days the weather had been calm and clear with slight frosts in the mornings, what it called an old wife's summer. In the sunshine the air was warm, and the warmth was particularly pleasant with the invigorating freshness of the morning frost still in the air. On everything far and near lay a magic crystal glitter, seen only at that time of autumn. The Sparrow Hills were visible in the distance with the village, the church and the large white house. The bare trees, the sand, the bricks and roofs of the houses, the green church spire and the corners of the white house in the distance all stood out in the transparent air in the most delicate outline and with unnatural clearness. Nearby could be seen the familiar ruins of a half-burned mansion occupied by the French with lilac bushes still showing dark green beside the fence and even that ruined and befouled house which in dull weather was repulsively ugly seemed quietly beautiful now in the clear motionless brilliance a french corporal with coat unbuttoned in a homely way a skull cap on his head and a short pipe in his mouth came from behind a corner of the shed and approached pierre with a friendly wink what sunshine monsieur kirill their name for pierre hey just like spring and the corporal leaned against the door and offered Pierre his pipe, though whenever he offered it, Pierre always declined it. To be on the march in such weather, he began. Pierre inquired what was being said about leaving, and the corporal told him that nearly all the troops were starting and that and though there ought to be an order about the prisoners that day. Sokolov, one of the soldiers in the shed with Pierre, was dying, and Pierre told the corporal that something should be done about him. The corporal replied that Pierre need not worry about that, as they had an ambulance and a permanent hospital, and arrangements would be made for the sick, and that in general everything that could happen had been foreseen by the authorities. Besides, Monsieur Kirill, you have only to say a word to your captain. You know, he is a man who never forgets anything. Speak to the captain when he makes his round. He will do anything for you. The captain of whom the corporal spoke often had long chats with Pierre and showed him all sorts of favours. You see, St. Thomas, he said to me the other day, Monsieur Kirill is a man of education. He speaks French. He is a Russian seigneur who has had misfortunes, but he is a man. He knows what's what. If he wants anything and asks me, he won't get a refusal. When one has studied, you see, one likes education and well-bred people. It is for your sake I mention it, Monsieur Kirill. The other day, if it had not been for you, that affair would have ended ill. And after chatting a while longer, the corporal went away. The affair he had alluded to had happened a few days before, a fight between the prisoners and some French soldiers, in which Pierre had succeeded in pacifying his comrades. Some of the prisoners, who had heard Pierre talking to the corporal, immediately asked what the Frenchman had said. 
While Pierre was repeating what he had been told about the army leaving Moscow, a thin, sallow, tattered French soldier came up to the door of the shed. Rapidly and timidly raising his fingers to his forehead by way of greeting, he asked Pierre whether the soldier, Platoche, to whom he had given a shirt, Dussault, was in that shed. A week before, the French had had boot leather and linen issued to them, which they had given out to the prisoners to make up into boots and shirts for them. Ready, ready, dear fellow, said Karatiev, coming out with a neatly folded shirt. Karatiev, on account of the warm weather and for convenience at work, was wearing only trousers and a tattered shirt as black as soot. His hair was bound round, workman fashion, with a wisp of lime tree bast, and his round face seemed rounder and pleasanter than ever. A promise his own brother to a promise his own brother to performance. I said Friday, and here it is ready, said Platon, smiling and unfolding the shirt he had sewn. The Frenchman glanced around uneasily, and then, as if overcoming his hesitation, rapidly threw off his uniform and put on the shirt. He had a long, greasy, flowered silk waistcoat next to his sallow, thin, bare body, but no shirt. He was evidently afraid the prisoners looking at on would laugh at him and thrust his head into the shirt hurriedly. None of the prisoners said a word. See, it fits well, Platon kept repeating, pulling the shirt straight. The Frenchman, having pushed his head and hands through without raising his eyes, looked down at the shirt and examined the seams. You see, dear man, this is not a sewing shop, and I had no proper tools, and as they say, one needs a tool even to kill a louse said Platon, with one of his round smiles, obviously pleased with his work. "'It's good, quite good, thank you,' said the Frenchman, in French, "'but there must be some linen left over.' "'It will fit better still when it when it sets to your body,' said Karatiev, still admiring his handiwork. "'You'll be nice and comfortable.' "'Thanks, thanks, old fellow, but the bit's left over,' said the Frenchman again, and he smiled. He took out an assigned... Uh, an assignation ruble note and gave it to Karatiev, but give me the pieces that are over. Pierre saw that Platon did not want to understand what the Frenchman was saying, and he looked on without interfering. Karatiev thanked the Frenchman for the money and went on admiring his own work. The Frenchman insisted on having the pieces returned that were left over and asked Pierre to translate what he said. What does he want the bits for? said Karatiev. They'd make fine leg bands for us. Well, never mind. And Karatiev, with a suddenly changed and saddened expression, took a, a small bundle of scraps from inside his shirt and gave it to the Frenchman without looking at him. Oh dear, muttered Karatiev, and went away. The Frenchman looked at the linen, considered for a moment, then looked inquiringly at Pierre, and as if Pierre's look had told him something, suddenly blushed and shouted in a squeaky voice. Platoche, eh, Platoche, keep them yourselves. And handing back the odd bits, he turned and went out. There, look at that, said Karatiev, swaying his head. People said they were not Christians, but they too have souls. It's what the old folk used to say, a sweating hand's an open hand, a dry hand's clothes. He's naked, but yet he's giving it back. Karatiev smiled thoughtfully and was silent a while, looking at the pieces. But they'll make grand leg bands, dear friend, he said, and went back into the shed. Alright, there we go, there's a chapter for you. Pierre being a favoured prisoner. Alright, thanks for listening, I'll see you tomorrow.